Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Thea is here. I am here. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> We're ready to go. Thea, how are you? Uh, I'm, I'm okay. I'm well, thank you. How is Alf? He is also well. Yeah, he's, he's Probably, has he's he taken fine. his little cone off? He, oh yes, that's long gone, is thankfully. It, he's doing well. He's, he's getting more confident every day. So it's going to, this he's is going to. He's a, he's a bit of a dick. Oh no! Why? <laughs> no, only when a people lo- come to the house, it's fine. What does he Unless do? Unless people come to the house, he's very loud about it. Oh, he offers a commentary. Is he getting of protected? Their every movement. But I wonder whether because he's never had security until now. Maybe he's getting he's sort of possessive. He's finally found a home of his own. Yeah, and maybe he which wants is to- very on theme with today's podcast. It is. It is about <laughs> Alf's room of one's own for, for Alf. <laughs> I'd like to meet him. How big is he? Oh, he'd hate you. Oh, well. Because you're, you're very tall and bearded, which yeah. is his worst. Yeah. Well, that's, that's true for so many other people as well. So he's, <laughs> he's in good company. Um, here's the bit where I encourage you to subscribe to the TLS. Use this special offer code and get on board. ver-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. That's podcast offer. It's the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for £5 or $5. Coming up this week, we're firmly in the grip of film awards season and we have a review of Marriage Story in the paper so we thought we'd get in Muriel Zaga who wrote it the review not the film and arts editor Lucy Dallas to talk about prize winning movies this month marks the 200th anniversary of the birth of Anne Bronte the sister whose reputation has been slowest to blossom but in the tenant of Wildfell Hall the sister who has written a novel best suited perhaps to our modern sensibility Samantha Ellis will make the case and Thea has been chatting to author Francesca Wade about her book Square Hauntings reviewed by Anne Kennedy Smith this week. It's the story of five women whose lives intersected in one London location. We'll hear a bit from the interview in this podcast and you'll get the whole thing on the podcast feed too. (laughs) 
Noah Baumbach is a laureate of East Coast artistic intellectual angst. His film Marriage Story, nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars this week, is perhaps the best distillation of his film preoccupations, the power of relationships to be misunderstood, and its impact on the family. It's a divorce movie with nods to Kramer versus Kramer, of course, but in terms of its feel, it also owes something to early Woody Allen, you know, when he was good. It is, in effect, an inverted romantic comedy. It begins with a couple, Charlie and Nicole, played by Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, saying their favourite things about each other. Ah, but not in the grip of love in the office of a divorce arbitrator. Marriage Story is really a breakup story, charting the effect on the couple and the son and the evil machinations of the divorce lawyer industry. Muriel Zaga has reviewed it and is here with us now alongside indie pop star Lucy Dallas so we can debate the state of the film industry in Oscar nomination week. Muriel, hello. Hello. Lucy, hello. Hello. And we, between us, we've seen quite a lot of the Oscar nominated films. So we're going to give all that a go. Shall we start, Muriel, with Marriage Story? It's been very widely fated. Is it as good as all that? I, I watched it and I kind of came out thinking that's a very nicely made, low key medium-sized film about divorce in New York. Good luck to it. I did that, and that was it. I watched it cold, that's to say, although I had seen other films by him, I didn't know how fated it was or was going to be, so perhaps I went in with slightly lower expectations. And I did think it was very good and that it was an interest. It benefits hugely from its star casting, and I find it quite a teasing experience to see such huge star as the stars as the ubiquitous Adam Driver who has to be in everything because that's the law now, <laughs> <Yeah>. clearly. <laughs> and Scarlett Johansson who's managed to step outside of the Black Widow franchise, although not for very long. It's very nice to see these huge stars in a, the confines of a smaller story. Yeah. So actually the minor key there, I thought, worked very well. There's a scene where they come home from uh, probably a session with their marriage counsellor and the babysitter's waiting for them. And she's it's a bit of a them and us scene because the babysitter is very ordinary looking, like you know most people are. And as they walk in, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, she says you guys are just so attractive. And so she voices what the audience is thinking all the way through, that these people are abnormally good-looking. And yet... Is Adam Driver abnormally good-looking? <laughs> he's interesting He's looking. interesting looking. Yeah. He's... Like, this is not the podcast message. Well, you want to look at him. He's a sense of attractive, that you uh, want to look at him. You want Noah to see Baumbach going loves on. him. And because he's not... This is not the only film that he's he's done with him. And he's I, in I, While We're Young. He was. Yes. I interviewed Noah Baumbach and I said, is sort of Adam Driver your male muse? And he kind of said, yes, they, when, they, mm. when they make films like this one, they're already talking about the next thing That's they want right. to do. So I kind of... He feels that he's integral to the movie. He's found his film alter ego maybe in a sort of François Truffaut, Jean-Pierre Léo sort of yeah. way. Where but I'm there's a younger self there. Um, there is... All his movies feel a bit alter ego-y. They're all kind of intellectual, slightly pseudo-intellectual New York East Coast artists. Is that a plus or a minus? Because partially it makes it feel even smaller to me. It's sort of the preoccupations of, you know, these theatre types. I think I think it's a plus because there is something perhaps uh, sadistically enjoyable about <laughs> watching people with pretensions and delusions about themselves mercilessly skewered. 
Marriage Story has perhaps less of that in a way. It's a gentler film, although it is brutal about marriage. It is gentler on its characters, I think, and more even-handed. But I remember the scene in Margot at the Wedding where uh, Nicole Kidman plays a writer who is very successful and then she's being interviewed in a bookshop by another writer and it's going to be terrific. And then she's asked whether a very unpleasant psychopathic character in her novel is actually based on herself. She thought she'd based it on her father. And that's a moment, it's very painful to watch, but there is also something perversely satisfying about watching people knocked off their pedestal. It's also, it doesn't matter whether we relate to them or not, because it's the job of the film to make you care about them. So it doesn't care? matter what they do and, and well, you've where they live. you seen it recently, Lucy. You boned up on it by watching it last night. I did indeed. And did you like it? I did like it. <laughs> I did like it. Yeah. You're not much good at this reviewing game, <laughs> <isn't you? laughs> How many stars? How many popcorns? How many popcorns would Adam Mars Jones no, give it? I'm just trying to think about it. I thought that, partly because of the, the hype as well, it would be terribly moving and, and affecting and a bit like, I suppose, you know, a bit like Kramer versus Kramer and all that. And I found it quite cool. I mean, I know that, Muriel, you say in your brilliant review that it's bittersweet, which it certainly is, but it's quite... The temperature is quite cool. There's a sort of big shouty scene, a big sort of acting with a capital A scene, which I didn't really buy, not because they're not very good, they are very good, but you could almost see the setup being done. I agree with you. I I actually went with that. I think I felt a little bit what you felt, but I went with it along the lines of this is a film about actors Mm. going through an ordinary human situation, but it's also a film about how ordinary people are actors, that we always perform our emotions, and that anyone who's been in a bit of a domestic will know deep down that however much you are really feeling in the moment, you're also using tropes from films or TV, because that's what you use to express yourself authentically in the moment. Yes. A bit. Yeah, and that's actually a really interesting way of seeing it. And Noah Baumbach is very smart, so yeah, uh, all get, of that stuff that. must must be on purpose. The bit I thought that was really terrific was the last, almost the last, there's a little, very short scene at the end when the dad is sitting with his son and his son is, has found the list that, that you talk about where they write about what they love about each other. Yeah. And his son doesn't know what it is and is just reading it out because he's practising. And then the dad takes over. And that's a beautiful scene, very moving, by far the most moving thing. Did it feel a bit schematic? I just wondered whether, because the, the opening scene is them reading out these loving words to each other. And it's clever. It's really, as a conceit, it's a really clever conceit. And then it's picked up at the end of the movie where they're not reading it into a divorce. Obviously, the son's reading and it, therefore it is genuine. It is a moment where they can live with each other, still divorced, but they're going to get, get through it, is, is I suppose the, the thrust of it all. Does yeah. that ruin the film? Oh, well, it's too late now, you've well, said it. <laughs> it's very carefully constructed. Yeah. But then again, the performances are so good and the language, the writing is so good that it carries you off with it. I think a lesser cast, weaker writing, and probably it would have felt a bit thin and a bit sort of papier-mâché. But and I, it, I did think it was too long. Everything's too long. Everything is too long. Everything is too long. But also I was Apart thinking about podcast, while we're young. <laughs> this podcast is not nearly long <laughs> enough. <laughs> while we're young, the, the earlier one that I was mentioning, and I really thought, thought that was a brilliant film and interesting in all sorts of ways. And, and I looked it up, and that's one hour 37. Yes, that's <laughs> the perfect length for It's the perfect yeah, length exactly for right. Isn't it? But, but they don't really, make if you've they, taken they don't 15, 20 like minutes out of it. No, they don't, but they, it's so rare that you see a film that 
I mean, under two hours, and you're standing and applauding when, yeah, you, when you read true. that. I mean, it's only really animation sometimes that yeah. still strays on that side. Uh, I mean, this didn't usually. feel... This was over two hours, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. The it Irishman was, is three hours... That felt every bit as long as it was to me. Fear really lived through the Irishman. I really did. did. <laughs> I think... I really wanted to like it. You know, there's that whole feeling of, oh, it's everyone together again, all of the films that you loved, and some of the performances are great. Al Pacino is excellent in it and does he play jimmy hoffa yeah yeah and yet it felt like a film made towards the end of a career that's the kind of not the culmination of all of the films that have gone before which is what it was being pitched as but just a sort of more of the same and longer and i think we've also done that whole thing of a gangster reckons with his life and reconciles himself with what he's done and the damage he's done before and I just wasn't convinced. Is there an argument I wonder that there's a sort of fantasy filmmaking that Netflix do? Because mm. they've got so much money they can sort of say Scorsese, get together De Niro Pacino, Pesci you've got four and a half hours you've got, strange, you've got the amazing technology so you don't even need to get to hire younger actors yeah. and it's almost kind of film school porn isn't it? Well, it's, kind um, of, it's kind of taken a Scorsese film to the nth degree because you can. And not enough constraints. Exactly, not enough constraints. Whether there's, The question is whether in the old school kind of studio way they would have said keep it to a certain time length and we want this and we, mm. you know, maybe think about an ending along these lines. Whether Netflix are just completely hands-off because they're so in awe of the genius that they brought to their but, platform. Uh, the counter-argument to that would be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the other, I mean, which yeah. has done incredibly well in the Oscar nominations. In lots of respects, it's kind of beautifully shot, it's kind of beautifully acted, but it's stupid and it's self-indulgent <laughs> and it's boring and the violence is naff and it smirks and it's a kind of exercise in directorial onanism from a man who is kind of in love with the film industry. And that's a studio production. And I kind of wonder whether it's not Netflix, it's big name if you're Tarantino mm. and Scorsese. We've talked about this before, actually, and with novelists. No one, no one, tell, say, no yeah, one no tells one you... It's the same thing. Nobody no one says, tells I you think no. you could lose chapter four and get rid of this person. I mean, once upon a time in Hollywood could lose an hour and it would be, it'd be a better movie for it. And it tells across the Oscar nominations as well because um, I think it was the BBC pointed out that the Oscar nominations for Best Actor and Supporting Actor, the average age is something like 72. Is it really? Or something oh. really high because we're just... We're lauding people for the whole of their career rather than the one yep. performance. Uh, the Same Margaret, as the Booker. The, the Margaret Atwood exactly, the Booker discussion. Yeah. Who's nominated for Best Actor, Lucy? You've got a list professionally in front of I you. I am very, being very professional about this. For the Oscars, it's Joaquin Phoenix for Joker, Adam Driver for Marriage Story, Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Antonio Banderas, Pain and Glory, which I haven't seen. It's supposed to be wonderful. And seen it? He an is wonderful in that. Have you yeah, seen it? Yeah. Wonderful. Yes, and there, again, you get the payoff from a long association between a director and an actor who's an alter ego. It's very... But not self that not self-indulgent. No, I didn't think so. And it's not that Almodovar has never been self-indulgent. He is known to it, but he seems to be kind of pairing back and... Becoming soberer. Yeah. Yes, I yeah, thought yeah. so too. Oh, and the other one is uh, Jonathan Price for The Two Popes. Which I've also seen, and it is pretty good. That's a very chamber piece, small movie. Uh, it's Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price as the two most recent popes. And it was once a play, and it feels like a play. It's two men on stage... And it's their conversations in the Vatican in the Pope's and the Pope's summer palace. They watch football and they talk a bit about clerical abuse. 
but not as much as you probably want them to. And they talk about the, you know, the being the Pope and and the fate of the Catholic Church and you know materiality and stuff like that. It but, sounds very Paolo Sorrentino. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. How long is it? It sounds kind of long. No, it's only like two hours, I think. No, I don't know. You're not tempted by it. I am tempted. It's not that tempting as well. I'm not tempted by that song at all. I am. I like the type on screen. Do you? Well, you're Italian. That's just genetics. Mira would like to take the Pope to Avignon and then she'd be interested. I had to watch it because of I interviewed Jonathan Price and he's been nominated, as you say, yes, for an yes, Oscar. Yes. That's the, he's 70-something. That's his first ever nomination, mm. I think. And they are very good in it, in a sort of very thespy way. It's two old, great actors. Both Welsh. But both, I just, well, yeah. both Welsh. I just can't film. bear that thing where, where you know you're going to see some acting. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? I just can't bear it. Well, yeah, but that's... Acting that's, with a capital A. But that's yeah, true. And really all... good actors don't do it, but in that setup, it's just like, it, they might as well put for the strap line, come and see two great people acting. That's... You know. <laughs> Which is the same. I mean, the Irishman's the same, surely. Yeah. And also, did you mind the CGI sort of youth it, process? I didn't like it at all. What's that also like? Also his eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did You're not sending it. Yeah. Did you watch it all the way through? <laughs> I did. In one go? I did, but did I... Did you stop it? No, I watched it in the cinema, so I couldn't ah, leave. And I actually out. felt... Yeah. I also had a pain in my foot at the time, so it became really existential. I felt so <laughs> trapped. I'm not sure we can blame Scorsese entirely for that. It just went on and on, did and I couldn't Scorsese leave. Scorsese make your foot? Yeah. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino would be interested in your foot. Oh, gosh, he would. <laughs> don't tell him. Yeah. Oh, don't but tell not, him not in a kind and helpful way. And actually, <laughs> once, upon a, and once upon a time in Hollywood, that's the bit that I... I actually yes, was yes. open-mouthed in that because oh, he, likes, he likes feet. He likes movies. And Margot Robbie at one point is barefoot in a cinema watching herself on the screen. Having said about of, seven words. Yeah, she still she doesn't yeah. say anything. I mean, it's, it's a 60s movie, so it's right in Tarantino kind of Proustian relish for the for the past. And then it just the camera just lingers on her dirty feet and you kind of think, really? I mean, yeah, good not, luck to you pursuing your interest, but this is, yeah, is this, is, is this for this. everyone? And I, and I kind of felt that it was well acted and it was, it's very lush, and I, I do like Tarantino. You know, and when I, I'm the age where when Pulp Fiction came out, it was a massive moment, and you thought, oh, I can't believe films exist like that, and the colour and the sort of the verve of them. But this is his ninth film, and it's, this is the point about you know, are, are, are we just having victory lap movies? Mm, the fact of the violence being as delayed as it is, and then it all comes all sort of in one scene. It really felt like they were playing with the audience's expectations, and it was yeah. like an in joke of There's you lot, know it's yeah. coming, you know it's coming, and then it. What did really, you think of the violence really mural at the end? Did um, it bother you? No. <laughs> okay. Did That's, you want more? That probably. <laughs> <laughs> Probably says something about me. No, it didn't bother me. I was I was certainly mesmerised by it. I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing. And at the same time... It was silly though, wasn't it? Yes, it's cartoonish, which makes it more palatable. Again, disturbingly, because it's easier to separate from it. And also because the Manson children are so demonic that we are able to not look at them as human beings at all. I suppose, yeah. and also because we know what's coming to Sharon. I mean, there's. I, I did. I did enjoy the movie a lot more than you, Stig. I think I skipped a few Tarantinos, so I came back to it to yeah. with this, and I did enjoy the movie. And also, I thought actually the strange parallel reality or or pre reality of the terrible thing that's going to happen to Sharon Tate worked quite well because it does create pathos. For me, it did. 
did and it? Even the one thing it didn't f- feel for me was that. Even like, though the film does treat her like the starlet that yeah, she was, yeah. um, you do still look at her and think, this is the end of Innocence, the end of the 60s. I went, I went along with that. It worked I did me. think the two main leads in it... I think Brad Pitt plays himself, but yeah. very well, yes. <laughs> uh, and in a very you know it, it's very impressive. He, he's he's a genuine superstar, and you feel that. And Leonardo DiCaprio actually has an acting role and acts it very well. I think this sort of failed, slightly seedy, over the hill actor. Are you not moved by the scene where he really nails it, and the child actor says? I've never seen anything like yeah. it. And he breaks down. It is parodic, but also quite moving. I thought it walked that line quite and well. Tarantino it's very Tarantino. Is, and Tarantino is, I mean, because I, I had to, I watched this one because I had to interview DiCaprio and, and Brad Pitt. And apparently, when Tarantino films, and you can either like this or, or this sounds like your idea of hell, he often just stops. And they sit around and tell stories about movies, because he's because With he's their shoes on or off. No, the ladies take their shoes off, of I course. imagine. But uh, but the idea being that this is a sort of love affair with mm. films, and if you're there, because he he's got so much. Like all these people, they don't have a they have a budget, but the budget I imagine is a bit hazy. They have a time pressure, but the time pressure is more hazy because they're so big. They get a chance to. So I suppose one of the problems there, maybe with the Tarantino, and maybe also with other films, is that it's a bit meta. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say that's marriage story. I'd say that's true marriage story. Because there have been comparisons with other directors, but Woody Allen in particular, I suppose, that is he the inheritor. Do you um, like Woody Allen? I love Woody Allen. Do you? Yes, I love Woody Allen and I. I've I, only really seen his. I, his last. The, the last 20 years have been so awful. Oh, uh, yes. Some of the early stuff is. Some of the early stuff is Amazing, and also I tend to I like to see the whole arc. I mean, to me, it's a bit like Eric Romer, who is also an influence on Baumbach, by the way, whose son is called Romer. I discovered. Oh, really? His first son from his first marriage, for he too has been through divorce. Yeah. He's very much in debt to these two people, and uh, he's not the new Woody Allen in the sense that Woody Allen was the first Woody Allen. You know, Woody Allen invented a certain kind of cinema. Eric Romer invented a certain kind of cinema that you might like or find very irritating. But they were the first ones to coin that. So maybe we're waiting for a new wave of filmmakers who are going to reinvent the, liked, the, the storytelling. I liked what you said about it in the in the piece that the film was a, a sort of musical theatre by stealth, yes. almost because it's got rather stagey music. And I was thinking this is slightly odd. It's a it's a bit like a, an intro to a musical. It's by Randy Newman. The music. Right. I, I realised at the end. I was very surprised to see it was Randy Newman. Yeah, I was too. And, and then they do. Song, they, they, they both mm-hmm. do. They, they, they do. both do a song right at the end. You, you can imagine that somewhere in a different reality there is a musical version of this film. It wants to be a musical. Yes, I mean, Fear and I were talking about this this morning because if 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 you got to the stage where you can only express yourself, you're, you can only bring your emotions out by singing. That's what musical theatre is, or, is, or opera. I mean, that's what it is. So that's it's what it a is. funny mix, but it's interesting, I think. I know I sound as though I'm slagging it off, but it, I'm still thinking about it. Go I on, think there's also a strange trend at the moment, which I, I, think, I think I'm resistant to, uh, which is a movement towards just thinking that if you're going to make a big, successful film, it has to have a song in it and a dance, or preferably both. Yeah. Greta Gerwig, who's just done Little Women, which is interesting and maybe we'll talk about uh, she's she's said that her next project is going to be a musical 
involving some tap dance. I, I think. think that had to happen right. because I yeah. remember reading that when she, when I first <laughs> saw her in a film, it was in uh, Whit Stillman's Damsels in Distress, which is a fantastic movie, I think, underrated. And I read somewhere that when she auditioned for Whit Stillman for this movie, she did a tap dance. Yeah. So that is clearly oh, and Frances how. Frances Ha as well. There's a tap dance, which is now no bound back with Greta Gerwig mm. yeah. in it. And yeah. indeed, not that it matters, There's but no bound back and Greta Gerwig are indeed partners in yeah. real life. And yeah. the new, a new power couple. A power yeah. couple. One oh, recognised at the Oscars and the other not all, you know, at the various awards. Well, and that's, I mean, maybe, the, maybe we should do about Little Women because who's seen Little Women here? Yes. Me. We've all seen We've Little all Women, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Alicia's seen it twice. Yeah. Once I paid. <laughs> you even paid to see it. Did you just stay for oh, the keep, second screening? <laughs> keeping it real, Lucy. Well, oh, yeah. um, and arguably, of all the films I've seen, we're talking about, including 1917, which we might get to, the direction in Little Women is its real strength. It's a beautifully, carefully cut together... It's constructed. Constructed. And, and it's the one that's not been nominated for Best Director. If it was a quilt or something, it would be really yeah. beautifully yes. done. And it's I not think. too long. And as you say, this, it's structured. So uh, the timeline... The timeline is interesting. Yep. The way she cuts between the two illnesses that Beth has mm. to structure it that way. And really makes really you well. think about the plight of the writer as well. Uh, the, a bit the where, the they make, where they make the book at mm. the end. Yeah. My favourite scene in the whole film and I think possibly my favourite scene in the whole of the year is when it's the girls and they're they're doing a sort of gentlemen's dining club in it's the attic Pickwick's. it's the Pickwick is it the Pickwick yeah, it's the yeah, Pickwick, it's Pickwick, 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 Pickwick club and the Pickwick papers yeah. and they're sitting there and they're pretending to smoke pipes and they've it's got top lovely. hats one and they're just taking the mickey out of each other and then they lorry bursts out of a cupboard and they say oh we can we have lorry no we can't have him he's a man and then they welcome him in and the whole thing it's both kind of joyous and bubbling over and yet very tightly controlled. I think that's the trick in this film, that it feels sort of exuberant. But not silly. But not silly. And when you, when you actually reflect on it, you were saying this, Lisa, you, you can see cuts that have been very deliberate, you know, and echoes mm. and mirrors that kind of that yeah, work. And it's, and it's not the same thing every time. Sometimes it's an angle that someone is looking at or sometimes it's a memory or sometimes it's a place. Or sometimes it's just a beautiful scene yeah. and the thought that if you lift yep. the camera and look down at all of these swirling dresses going mm. up the stairs, it will look amazing. The clothes yeah. are brilliant because basically Saoirse Ronan playing Joe and Laurie... Uh, who is Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet and they're a real life power couple of course themselves they both could look like they could swap clothes and you wouldn't really even notice that much and they would quite enjoy swapping clothes yeah. and that would be fine I would love Laurie's yeah. outfit so do I would love I would love Laurie's outfit yeah exactly I, I read uh, there was a, a horrible thread on Twitter the other day about the film uh, attacking the film on the basis of the hairstyles I don't know if you've seen this oh, yeah. uh, because the hairstyles are too modern too contemporary they don't wear their hair up in that dreadfully unflattering way and also their hair isn't greasy enough you know all of that stuff they're all too good looking which I thought was imagine you came across them like the babysitter in marriage show you'd be like this is ridiculous it is but you know it's a movie and I thought it was like quite a dreary sort of mean spirited attack the look of that film is I mean and also the book is let's be honest the book is a bit saccharine it's it's not a I mean there's an element of realism to it and she's a sort of figure in realism clearly who's my alcohol but it's not that realist it's a sentimental book that you're entitled to take things from and play with it's not a I it's not the sacrosanct film, the film elevates the book I, yeah. I love the book I'm you know I grew up reading it yeah. in French translation yeah. I've never actually read it in English yeah. but, uh, but I thought the film did that very well to take something that is perhaps um, 
second tier literature and elevate it to first class cinema. And Florence Pugh, who plays, oh, she's, she's amazing. amazing. She plays yeah. so good. It's brilliant, yeah. and she's been and she justifiably she does, she gets nominated. She's nominated, yeah. Yeah, well, and Laura Dern's not nominated for this. She's nominated for Marriage Story, mm-hmm. in which she, is she is remarkable. Also brilliant in Do we feel that marriage? We probably have to end this because we could talk about this all day. Uh, do we think that the, the I thought the lawyers were the most fun things in Alan Alda's great in it, Ray Liotta's great in it, uh, and Laura Dern. Laura uh, Dern is yeah, amazing. There's a scene great. where well, she's absolutely fantastic at using her physicality because she has these sort of serpentine limbs, doesn't she? So she's sort oh, of infinite somehow, yeah. Yeah. and pointy shoes, and yeah. apologising for looking schleppy when mm. she looks incredibly well groomed. Yeah. But also, there's a scene in court during a hearing where she strategically removes her jacket and she's wearing a sort of minuscule uh, at leisure, I think it's called, a pink top and makes pink a really scary colour in that moment (laughs) because she's sort of bearing herself for attack. I can't imagine anyone else being able to pull yeah. that off. And to make your point about performative, the lawyers in it are—they're—they're they're exactly doing the same thing. They are playing the game because they—they—they they, they kill each other in course and then they go off and and have dinner. Yes, and afterwards. Like, and they all have a hearty appetite. There's a great scene where all the lawyers are rubbing their hands because yes, it's lunchtime. Lunch and the husband place. and wife. Yes, and the traumatized husband and wife. <laughs> well, she like, has to oh. order for him. Yes, I found that it's whole thread like, a bit odd. What she orders for him, and at the end that she does his shoes up. Yeah. I found that. A bit mystifying. Well, there's a whole other thread about marriage and being a good wife and what that means, which is something perhaps for another day, but (laughs) where perhaps the film is not as groundbreaking as it wants to be. Well, I think, but. but isn't it that she can't get out of it? It's the dynamic yeah. of being there. But also, she's being helpful because she doesn't want him to, to trip, trip over when he's side. got the boy in <laughs> yes. his carrying. But I have to say, also, in, in Marriage Story, the, the, the boy is brilliant. You, I mean, he was—he was just absolutely brilliant. I thought you didn't—you wouldn't have known he was acting. It was just like a kid throwing himself around the place. That's right. Uh, exactly. We should leave it. What, top film then that's been nominated. What would you like to see do well uh, in this? Are we saying Marriage Little Story? Women, Little, are, we, are we Little saying Little Women? women? I think, yes. Am I the only one who's seen 1917? So I, I almost went to see it, and then I decided to see Uncut Gems instead. And I think I'm glad I did. Okay. Well, 1917. I, I saw. It's amazingly shot. Mm. It is a magnificent piece of filmmaking. But my problem with it, go and see it and let me know what you think. Because I found that I got to the end of a First World War movie and I didn't feel moved because I I felt impressed. Mm. And that, now some people think I'm completely wrong. And I've said that on the radio and someone said, no, you're rubbish. I was dreadful. I was entirely moved. So maybe I am wrong. But it felt to me that it felt a bit like a computer game. The idea of the swooping camera that follows one character to around. And it felt like you were just looking at a piece of cinematography and filmmaking Mm. that was kind of awesome but I'm not sure that's what I want from a... A from bit like Dunkirk. Yeah, the sort of scale of it was too... Because it's, it's an intimate movie in the sense it just follows two people the whole way and they get to a French village that's been blown up and it looks like something out of Bosch. And, you know, mm. the colour... Or Blake, you know, the colours are sort of... It looks like hell. And the colours are amazing and these, these flares are going up and it's incredibly... It's an incredible thing to look at. And at the same time, it's about these two guys, so it has an intimacy. But, yeah... I think it will do it. I think it will do ridiculously well because it's incredibly auteur-y. Sam Mendes is telling the story his granddad told him. He's Dukes. He's 20 years since American Beauty. It feels like a very safe bet for Oscar voters to give it to. It's not the sort of bombast of Scorsese and Tarantino. I just wonder whether that will... 
Maybe that will do. do that will well. do well. But uh, Little Women are winsome act, act, actor roles. You'd have thought. I hope so. You've got to hope so. Well, it's the year of Laura Dern, clearly, because she's the <laughs> yeah. mother. Will she ever do anything better than Jurassic Park? <laughs> yes, I think she just did. Fine. Miro Zaga, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Lucy, thank you for coming downstairs. I think it was a long way, but <laughs> yeah. I managed. Well done. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Virginia Woolf once wrote that London itself perpetually attracts, stimulates, gives me a play and a story and a poem without any trouble save that of moving my legs through the streets. Well, London, actually just a small part of it, has given Francesca Wade her first book, Square Hauntings, an account of how five women made their literary lives in Mecklenburg Square near Bloomsbury between the walls. The women are... Wolf herself, the poet HD, the crime writer Dorothy Sayers, the Cambridge classicist Jane Ellen Harrison and the historian Eileen Power. Their lives are fascinating, needless to say, in themselves, but also paint a broader picture of the intellectual position of women in the mid-century. A square of one's own, if you like. Thea sat down to hear more from Francesca and here is a little bit from the interview. Yeah, well, Mecklenburg Square is situated right out on the eastern edge of Bloomsbury, which as an area that we know today is pretty different both in looks and in kind of atmosphere and feel from how it was both when the area was set out and when these women were living there. Bloomsbury was originally conceived um, by the original landowners as a sort of upper middle class suburb. The Duke of Bedford commissioned these grand houses to be built on his estate Um, but by the time they were all finished any family who was rich enough to buy one wanted to live out in West London which is much more fashionable so the houses got kind of divided up into flats and the area became known as a kind of a place of transition I think there's a a quote 
Marjorie Allingham in the introduction who in the 1930s said that the area was somewhere where if you lived there you were either on your way up or on your way down and it was really a place where at this time single people who wanted to live on their own or with friends in flats or boarding houses could congregate and it very much had a literary reputation um, because the British Museum reading room was right in Bloomsbury's heart which was open to all to um, and read and study. And it's, I mean, it's clear that for all of the women uh, that you write about here, in different ways and at different stages in in their lives, Mecklenburg Square, it represented a kind of experiment in selfhood, I suppose, and mm. a, an alternative to, that, to a title to the book could be something along the lines of how should a woman be or even mm. how to be both. Yeah, what I was interested in, in the conceit of the book was to examine all of these women's lives during the period that they happened to live in Mecklenburg Square, which began when I discovered that so many interesting characters had congregated in this one place, which at first when I discovered it seemed like it must be a complete coincidence. And what I wanted to do in the research for this book was, I suppose, ask why it was that they had all been drawn to this place and what they were kind of looking for there and what the place represented to each of them and of the five that I write about Eileen Power was the only one who lived there for more than a few years but the more I researched the more it seemed to me that each one of them moved there at a formative time in their lives in a period of transition or of kind of redefinition of themselves so maybe maybe we'll get on to how they each what they were each sort of looking to do. but well, Certainly for all of the women who, even those who, who moved there in the early part of their career when they were really setting out, so you think of HD and Dorothy Sayers in particular, mm. let's start with HD and let's try to move chronologically as you mm. do, but it's a, there's a very clear sense that her time in the square, even though I think she was only there for two years, it mm. stayed with her. She had to resolve a kind of break free of or, or resolve a, a creative and personal crisis that was really set in motion in that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, HD was born in America and she came to London in 1911. She lives in, lived in various addresses around London. But these years in Mecklenburg Square were really crucial through her life to her kind of sense of herself. In the 30s, she had a long period of analysis with Freud to deal with a kind of writer's block that she'd been experiencing. And he told her that he thought that these years and during the First World War when she'd happened to have been living in Mecklenburg Square, um, were key to these personal tangles that she was struggling with. And he urged her to return to writing a novel that she'd been writing on and off over the last decade, um, which explored everything that happened in the square and in the years just before and after she moved there. Um, So she arrived there during the First World War in 1916. Quite soon after they moved in, her husband, Richard Aldington, was called up um, and had to go away to fight. So she was left there on her own. And when he came back, he um, was having an affair with the woman who lived upstairs called Arabella York. So she was in this very difficult position of having to see him and having, but also having to see him go upstairs and not really want to spend time with her. She was in a kind of personal crisis with her own writing she kept sort of tearing up the poems that she was working on she was really in a state of transition I think in within her poetry as well her name HD was given to her by Ezra Pound um, who she'd briefly been engaged to in America and who really seized on some of her early verses as representative of this movement imagism that he was kind of championing. He really admired them for their kind of clarity and directness and their focus on kind of moments of natural beauty. 
But during the war, HD started writing, started translating from ancient Greek and started focusing on particularly the female choruses of Euripides, who are often kind of standing by powerless while they watch men be destroyed at war. And I think it's a kind of powerful comment on the personal crisis that she was experiencing in this year. And this thing of trying to find a voice that is true to the woman that she is and the woman that she wants to be and the society that she wants to be a part of, all of that. I mean, I suppose it would be remiss of me not to point out that you've also, as well as this wonderful book, you've also written an introduction to a book published by the TLS just now. We've got this imprint. Um, And the book is called Genius in Ink, Virginia Woolf on How to Read. And it's a collection of her reviews and essays for the TLS. So it's worth mentioning, not only because reading those pieces um, by Wolf on George Eliot and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Charlotte Bronte, you see Wolf wrestling with many of the ideas that that you go over and bring to the fore in, in your book, but also because you mentioned there how she, how Wolf wrestled with this, I think she called it, or you called it a phantom mm. voice, the expectation yeah. that in her writing and her reviewing, she would be womanly. Yeah, well, Wolf is in a, a kind of guiding spirit to the book in a way because her book, A Room of One's Own, was very formative for me both kind of personally and also in the way that I came to conceive of what might have brought all these women to Mecklenburg Square and Room of One's Own is partly a a literal statement. Wolf says that for a woman who wants to be a writer you need £500 a year and a room of your own Um, but the room as well as being a physical reminder that you need to write you need space you need not to be interrupted. It's also a a metaphor I guess for um, for being taken seriously and for having these... She's asking what conditions you need in order to fulfil your creative potential. And I think that's what all of the women in this book were really asking when they moved to the square and when they set up their lives there and when they thought about who they wanted to share it with or how they wanted to decorate or what sort of work they wanted to do there. And I think for HD, those questions were incredibly important because she had always been sort of defined by other people, people around her, particularly by men. I mean, from quite a young age, Ezra Pound really took her under his wing, which was exciting, informative and important, but also she came to find increasingly stifling. Um, she later wrote that she you know, she had to sort of get away from him. She knew that if she'd married him when they were quite young, she would never have been able to become a writer herself. And I think this is these are the questions that she was going over and over in the novels that in this cycle of novels that she wrote through her life which culminated in 1960 the year before she died she finally published a version of this ongoing novel the rest she she wrote destroy on the manuscripts although they did survive and in fact have subsequently since her death been published so you can see how the story kind of developed and the different emphases she put over the years but the crux of this final novel that she published in 1960 bid me to live is this disagreement she had with dh lawrence kind of rooted in the months when he came to stay with her in mecklenburg square the book ends by her writing a letter to this character who's clearly based on Lawrence and they've clearly had an argument where he's essentially told her that women should only write about women's experiences, they shouldn't try to speak for men or speak universally and she writes a really moving, powerful letter back which in fact has some kind of linguistic echoes with The Room of One's Own where she says, you know, in order to be free I have to be able to write as I want and I can't be constrained by what anyone wants of me or what expects me to be and I think that is kind of emblematic of what all of these women in very different ways were looking yeah. for. 
Thea and Francesca Wade, Square Hauntings, Five Women, Freedom and London Between the Wars by Francesca Wade is out now. As regular listeners will know, since 2016 we've been marking the Bronte Bicentenary, which began with a commemoration of Charlotte Bronte, born in 1816, followed by Emily two years later. Now, finally, we turn to Anne Bronte, the baby Bronte, who died in 1849 in Scarborough. And there she was buried, away from the family plot back in Haworth, with a tombstone riddled with errors. For one thing, her age was recorded incorrectly. She was 29, not 28. An error which even somehow survived her sister Charlotte's attentions a year or so later when the tombstone was replaced. All this is fitting. The way Anne Bronte's life was rounded off is in some ways symptomatic of the way she lived and has been remembered. She's always been seen by most as the lesser Bronte, plodding in life as in bicentenary celebrations, in the wake of her older sisters, and as something of an outlier when it comes to the family's supreme talents. Understanding of her two novels, Agnes Grey and The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, has, like her tombstone, been plagued by mistakes. And her sister Charlotte has played a considerable part in this too. Here to set the record straight is Samantha Ellis. Hello, Samantha. Hi, hello. I suppose before we set the record straight, we should probably look at how the record came to be in the first place. Um, How did the, the prevailing idea of Anne and her work come about? Well, really through Charlotte. Charlotte was the only surviving uh, sibling of the Brontes. She was grieving, obviously, so making all these decisions in the depth of her grief. But she also, I believe, had some very fixed views about her sister. I mean, obviously, it's slightly difficult to say she was wrong. She knew her sister. (laughs) We didn't. But from the record, it does seem that she underestimated her little sister she always saw her as the baby she always saw her as angelic there's a story where she thought she saw an angel over Anne's cradle when she was a baby and so she always sort of saw her as this kind of angelic figure she describes her as sweet and mild and blameless and she sort of saw her as being quite dejected and melancholy very pious and I'm not sure that really fits with the kind of fierce radical writing that we find in Anne's work and also even in her very witty and sort of sparky and courageous letters there's only five of them but they don't sound like for want of a better word this wimp (laughs) she sounds a lot more gutsy than that anyway uh, Charlotte had these views which she described Anne and Emily in a sort of biographical notice which was the first sort of mini biography of the 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 Bronte sisters and um, she also then talked a lot about Anne to Elizabeth Gaskell who was Charlotte's became Charlotte's first biographer and so that really set the tone for how Anne was seen but also she didn't like Anne's second novel The Tenant of Wildfell Hall so she refused to allow any reprints in her lifetime it was a bestseller when Anne died and it fell very quickly out of print And the only book left that people could read was Agnes Grey, her first novel, which is a wonderful book, but, you know, it doesn't have the sort of fierceness of the tenant Wildfell Hall. But also, even that, that she didn't think Anne's fiction was as good as Emily's, and that's stuck on the front of every edition of Agnes Grey. They don't put that on the editions, do they? Did they put that on the editions? (laughs) Well, it was in the biographical notice, so... I suppose they have to. Um, Was Charlotte trying to protect her own literary um, reputation in this? She didn't want any comparisons? 
Certainly with Agnes Grey, there was an issue about comparisons because Agnes Grey was a uh, novel about a plain, not as in definitely not beautiful governess who sets off um, for work, goes through two different jobs and finds love at the end um, and uh, faces all sorts of trials in between. And she'd written, uh, Anne had written it before Charlotte thought to write about a plain governess <laughs> who also has her, her trials and finds love. Unfortunately for Anne, uh, Jane Eyre came first. So then Agnes Grey seemed like it was just another, oh no, not another governess novel, and she also isn't pretty. So there was a comparison issue. I think with The Tenant of Welfare Hall, it's more complex. I think partly it's a story of a, of a young woman who is very beautiful, who um, falls for a sexy, dangerous cad, like all the other Bronte heroines. Yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> She sees the light and she leaves him. And that does not happen in in any of Charlotte or Emily's work. It was in part a critique of um, of Jane Eyre and of Wuthering Heights and was partly saying, why did you make these men so attractive? Why did you make these horrible men? You know, Heathcliff and Rochester are not nice guys. Why did you make them romantic heroes? This is not love's young dream. It shouldn't be. Well, and also and presumably that's... wasn't true to the, the experience that they'd had with their own brother. No, who was a sort of, you know, self-destructive, alcoholic, drug addict, um, fiercely creative. He was always writing. He was always drawing. Um, he was painting, um, but he never quite made anything of himself. He was sort of brought down by his addictions and by circumstance. You know, they, they didn't have much money. They didn't know many people. He tried to go to art school in London. It, no one quite knows why it didn't work out. But he did sort of end up you know, living this really tragic life where he's living in his father's house and going out and getting wasted, sometimes for days at a time, and then having to be hauled up the stairs by his sisters because he can't get to bed. And he's sleeping in his father's room because he's so out of it that he can't be trusted to sleep in his own room. Anne discovered him one night when he was still in his own room with his bed on fire because he sort of knocked out the candle when he was fallen asleep. Uh, or into a sort of drunken stupor and knocked out his own candle. He didn't become this hero that perhaps he and his sisters wanted him to be, but Anne saw that. Well, and and so, I mean, to Emily and Charlotte's romanticism, she brings a a really diligent realism. You make the case that both Agnes Grey and um, The Tenant, they're both sort of like campaign novels in in a sense. Mm. Yes, I think so. I mean, Agnes Grey is really um, very closely based on her, her own experience as a governess. And, and I mean, all three sisters um, d- did teaching jobs. Charlotte and Anne both worked as governesses in private homes and both really had a horrible time. I mean, they were treated badly. There's a horrible incident where Charlotte was a governess and one of the children threw a stone at her forehead and cut her forehead. There's another incident where one of the children said to Charlotte that they loved Charlotte and the mother just went, love the governess, you know, horrified. And Anne also had a really difficult time at both of her jobs. And yet you look at Jane Eyre and she's got this lovely pupil, Adele, a joy to teach, you know, (laughs) Um, charming, pretty, maybe not the academic star that, you know, you'd want, but she's happy to, very teachable girl, like lovely girl, lovely company. She's got um, Mrs. Fairfax, the lovely housekeeper, plenty of free time to go for long walks and read. You know, it's, it, it, that was not Anne's experience or Charlotte's experience. And in Agnes Grey, you see her really going through the mill and having a tough time. And then with The Tenant and Wilfer Hall, are we in the, the, the realm? It feels, certainly from your version in this essay, that this feels like a, a book that, if it wasn't quite of its time back in the 19th century, because it, it is rather too challenging, it may have mm. found its moment 
in the 21st century because it's about a woman who fights against a sort of patriarchal system. There is sexual violence, there's, an, there's, yes. there's gaslighting, there is... There is abuse, but it's not abuse that is somehow romanticised away, that it may, which may happen in other Brontes. It's confronted and it's dealt with. Yes, I mean, I wish it had found its moment when she wrote it because, you know, it would have helped. I'm sure it did help a lot of women who read it, but I think it would have helped a lot more. Um, but it's still helping women. You know, while I was um, writing my book on Anne Bronte, someone sent me an article from the Sydney Morning Herald and it was a, it's an anonymous article by a um, woman who had been in an abusive marriage in Australia with a man who, he, I mean, he was abusive in every way. But one of the things he did was censor her reading. Anyway, one day she came home. She she writes this piece. She came home with a copy of The Tenant and Welfare Hall. And he was like, oh, OK, just another Victorian romance. Go ahead. <laughs> so she reads it. And she realised that if 150 years ago Anne Bronte had written um, this story of this woman leaving an abusive marriage. Why was she staying in her marriage? And she walked out. She had the courage. It gave her oh the courage to walk out. I mean, that's in her own words. It still has that impact on the people who need to hear it. But as a piece of writing, I mean, has uh, a piece of writing because are you tempted? Are we tempted because it has politics that chime better with our age because it's been overlooked? Mm. Are we inclined to look on it with two? kind of forgiving an eye i mean as a piece of literature is it is it possible to make the case for it above jane eyre or above wuthering heights do you think as a literary as a piece of literary work i think the tenant of Wuthering hall is a phenomenal book i i really do think it's amazingly written i mean i don't, not everyone agrees um tracy chevalier's written a wonderful introduction to the new folio society edition of it and she doesn't like the frame she finds it a sort of clumsy setup but then she says when we get into the main part of the novel which is the heroine's diary it's a sensational in every way piece of writing that's what Tracy Chevalier has said and that's a novelist writing about another novelist so so not everyone loves everything about it but I think it's got a power you can't really deny not just because of its politics Mm. Um, and it's also there's a lot of humor in it in both novels I think people miss the humour because, I mean, there is a lot of religion in both of the novels. Anne was much more religious than her sisters, I think. And that doesn't but feel she, modern, does it? That that's, that's possibly no. makes her seem more of her age. Yes, but she does say in the Agnes Grey, the end of religion is to teach us how to live. It's not about just do you believe in this or do you believe in that. It's how are you, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to live your life? How are you going to bring your values into your life now? And what do you believe? And I think that's really important because I think I think we're questioning our values all the time now and it actually feels quite modern to me to sort of go I mean I mean you know in the tenants of Wildfell Hall the heroine leaves her husband Um, that's not allowed (laughs) I mean you know that wasn't legal at the time but also many would have called it immoral no you, you stay with him no matter what she leaves him you can break the law you can break morality doing the right thing doesn't always mean doing what people think you ought to be doing that's an interesting yeah that's a really interesting point actually because it was her christianity that clearly gave her that sense of a higher moral world in the the, the legal system just hadn't caught up with yes the church many i mean patrick bronte her father had had advised a woman to leave her her abusive and alcoholic husband and Anne knew about this and this was partly in the inspiration for the tenant of Welfare Hall but he was very unusual I mean he used to um, baptize illegitimate children which very very few 
clergymen would do at the time. He, at one point, when the poor laws were being uh, rolled out in Yorkshire, he urged his congregation to rebel um, uh, against, to revolt, actually, he used the word revolt. He was quite an unusual clergyman. I mean, that was not, you know, the church was not in favour of women leaving their husbands, even if they were alcoholics, unfaithful, abusive. It did give her something to lean on, but also she's all about finding your own values and your own way. And I, I find that very powerful myself, but also very modern, I think. Uh, we have to leave it uh, here, Samantha, but are you, uh, are you saying if you had to pick a Bronte novel of the Bronte, there's not that many of them, it's a, it's a, pretty, it's a, pretty, uh, it's a pretty fierce competition. Are, we, are you making the case for Tenant of Wildfell Hall as the uber Bronte novel? Oh, it's so difficult. I, I'm going to be really rubbish. I, I can't choose. You um, don't have I to. Yes, she does have to. So of course you have to. No, I grew up with... You see, I think you have different not different Bronte novels for different parts of your life. And I grew up with Wuthering Heights. And that was... If you'd asked me at any time between 12 and 35 or so, I'd have said Wuthering Heights is the only one. I had a brief Jane Eyre phase. <laughs> and I think... I always think, think Villette's quite yeah. a, a, a... is quite a cool one to, to throw out there. The connoisseur. The connoisseur's uh, choice. The persuasion <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to Wuthering Heights Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm prepared to believe I may go through more revolutions. But I think that's one of the exciting things. They had their sibling rivalry and their novels were compared to each other. And then we're still doing it. Yeah. It sort of fuels the legacy, I suppose, this constant putting one against the other and making them fight. But they for... were also they were in conversation <laughs> with each other. Yeah. They were you know, they were having the argument. So we're just continuing the argument they started. And I don't I don't think they would mind us doing that. <laughs> uh, have you ever read Cold Comfort Farm, Samantha? I love Cold Comfort. One of my favourite lines yeah. in it is it's my is it my bug? And he yeah. basically his theory is that all the novels of the Brontes was written were written by Bramwell. Well, if that's the case, we've no need for any sibling rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a fi- it. He was too busy setting fire to his yeah. own bed. I've got, yeah, I was good. I've got I a feeling that came out after he died, but maybe I don't know. He just he'd hidden them under his pillow. And yeah. They well, that doesn't, that doesn't stop <laughs> that doesn't stop people saying Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare because they've they've got people um, who who died in 1604 still writing Shakespeare plays. But that's yeah. that, that's the subject of a whole other podcast. <laughs> I mean, I wrote yeah, <laughs> we've all had a go. Uh, Samantha, what a great joy. You know what? I've not read Tenant of Wildfire Hall, or if I have, I've read it a long time ago. So I'm going to go off now, thanks to you, and read it. Oh, okay, fantastic. Lovely. Thank you very much. Samantha Ellis, thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure, thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Muriel Zaga and Lucy Dallas, Samantha Ellis and Francesca Wade. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS so you don't miss a word. Online, we have launched a new series called Originals with all sorts of weird and wonderful subjects. Plus, in the paper this week, we have all that Bronte, plus the French Revolution, stories about food, the impact of Instagram and much more. Next week, the theme is Design in all sorts of ways. Intriguing stuff. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. 
Invesco Distributors, Inc. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.